You're listening to Meritocracy. Carrie Lee Merritt, and welcome to another episode of Meritocracy. Today, we are starting a brand new series, not only on our YouTube channel, like you're all used to, but also as a podcast. Over the next few weeks, I will be interviewing six of the top scholars in a series titled The 2020 Election and Beyond, The Possibilities and Pitfalls of Living in a Post-Trump America. Now, today, we will be talking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Walter D. Grayson. Now, Dr. Grayson is a Dean Emeritus of the Honor School, as well as an Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Educational Counseling and Leadership at Monmouth University in West Long Branch, New Jersey. He has written and edited six books on the history of slavery, segregation, and globalization since 2010. Dr. Grayson's work and social media, most notably Twitter, definitely give him a follow, at World Professor, has transformed global discourse regarding anti-Black violence, world systems theory, and the social history of capitalism. Most recently, he announced the beta testing of an interactive digital game titled Sojourner's Trail that teaches about the Black speculative arts movement. Dr. Grayson's graduate programs train teacher leaders, counselors, principals, and superintendents in an anti-racist assessment and program development. His work with the T. Thomas Fortune Foundation set a new standard for scholarly impact. So definitely make sure you go ahead and hit subscribe on my YouTube station or the podcast station that you're listening to, but also be sure to go check out Dr. Grayson's work on www.com. Walter D. Grayson, G-R-E-A-S-O-N.com, or look him up, or and look him up on Twitter, at World Professor. And also, if you have a few bucks or some time to donate, look up that T. Thomas Fortune Foundation. It is an amazing, amazing organization. Now, we'll get back to the interview. Thanks a lot. Welcome back to Meritocracy. I'm Carrie Lee Merritt. Today, I'm here with Dr. Walter Grayson. I gave you a little bit of information about him before we started, so I'm going to get right into the questions of him. Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for being here today. It's a joy. Thank you. So before we delve into the really super heavy political stuff, I wanted to ask a few questions about you. Um, If you look over your CV, it becomes immediately clear that you've always been involved in community-based, multicultural activism, even working as a multicultural consultant. Throughout graduate school, it looks like, and even through every teaching position that you had, you did this as well. Why was that work so important to you? And how do you think that multicultural organizing and activism will end up shaping the political atmosphere in a post-Trump America? So that work started for me long before I entered college or graduate school. I was doing that basically from my early adolescence. Uh, the first project I did as a young man was a uh, community food program where folks basically shared small amounts of money, $10, every month so that hundreds of pounds of food could come into the community and feed the needy. And that shaped me. That kind of activism where we build together with common sacrifice, um, I can't imagine living without it. it it's 
a core governing principle of, of my character. And so no matter what I did, didn't matter whether it was a high school diploma or a college degree, none of that stuff mattered as much as that core commitment to finding and building community, especially where it was most needed. So, um, yeah, the, the big kind of stopping post for me was uh, a group called the Ujima Collective that I founded while I was in graduate school. And the Ujima Collective was, you know, a few of us just getting together, pitching in about $20, and then sharing resources at all the major universities in the Philadelphia region so that it would empower um, Black, Latino, and Indigenous youth in ways that just the local government couldn't. And in the space of a decade, it completely transformed Philadelphia politics. And uh, it still functions as part of both the University of Pennsylvania and the uh, city of Philadelphia, this formal municipal kind of charter and mission. So um, those, those commitments are, are the heart of who I am. So following up on that question, how has your own personal background shaped you for this kind of work, this kind of leadership? You know, what kind of struggles did you overcome in your own background? And more importantly, what do you do now to kind of rebuild strength and shore up hope? So because of that kind of community work, I came up in a segregated rural Black community in New Jersey. So most people thought of Black community in New Jersey like Newark or Trenton or Camden or Atlantic City. I'm not from any of those places. <laughs> I'm from a little town called Freehold, um, kind of in the middle of the Pine Barrens. And, you know, most of my early work was, was documenting that local history and then connecting it to kind of broader social patterns. And that work of being tied into a Black community that was marginal, always, in some ways, fundamentally prisoner to forms of white supremacy, like the Klan was still a, a dominant factor in this community, I'd argue to this day, but certainly in the 1980s. And so um, just growing up under the, the rule, the, the boot of white supremacy in some very tangible ways shaped me profoundly. But um, because my father was extraordinarily light-skinned and uh, biracial, but they didn't use that term for him growing up, they identified as an African-American. Um, and my mother was very dark. Um, my complexion shaped my experience in some really profound ways that among the black community I was in, there were expectations that I would achieve more and, and be accepted in ways that other people were not. And my father made a commitment to get me into a private school at age five. And I was the only African-American in the school for the better part of 12 years. And as traumatic as that was, it gave me a set of tools and, and resources that other people in my community couldn't imagine. And so that that dynamic was is always kind of where I live. And I think the biggest simple trade-off has been in the last decade. I committed myself to a path of studying economic history because I knew so few Black scholars engaged in it. And, and really learn the mechanics of traditional macroeconomics as applied to the African-American experience. And there was there's this long history of studying racial capitalism, but it, did, it wasn't grounded in the quantitative analysis and modeling that economic historians use. And so I kind of took a, a huge risk in trying to get into that field and be rejected by the economists as a historian 
but also be criticized by black historians for doing material that wasn't really standard for, for the lines of inquiry that existed in the profession. And so, um, you know, trying to be in, in that kind of conceptual borderland where I can take the tools of the economists now and use them for, for the goals of kind of liberation within the ideas of, of black studies and ethnic studies, um, you know, there's a price to be paid for doing that kind of thing. And I, I certainly pay it every day. But for me, the goal of a decade from now or five decades from now, we see a much different conceptual framework, um, infrastructure, financial infrastructure for people. Um, that's that's worth it. I'm, I'm willing to take the short-term penalty to try and build something better down the road. And that's that's based in how I grew up in that I didn't really belong fully anywhere. So I might as well use the chance to kind of be outside everywhere to do something that other folks wouldn't have, have the access to do. I think that's what we miss so much in academia is, is, is confining ourselves to one discipline. And that's so much important work really gets lost in that. And I, I really applaud scholars like you and, and Sandy Darity and Kristen Mullen and to think about just the fact that reparations, that what, nobody, nobody knew what reparations, nobody in white America knew what reparations was 10 years ago. And now it's literally being talked about in the government. I mean, that's, that's a testament to the work that you guys have done. Dr. Lisa Cook will be on um, later on this week too. And I mean, all of this amazing work, Dr. Trayvon Logan. But turning to kind of the election now for a few questions, kind of your election prediction and advice drawing on your deep wealth of knowledge about how activists particularly should approach these final few weeks of the campaign. Unfortunately, you know, pretty much all of us who are, are um, experts in history and American history know that there will probably be a lot of violence in the next few weeks. So what do you think that activists should know? What should they keep in mind as we're really entering the most important election probably of, of both your and my, my lives? Yeah, that's such an important way to start and kind of keep focused in, in the next two to three months. I will start basically on that by saying no activist, no activist organization should be bound by the time time frames of formal politics. We have to engage the struggle and work on a continuous basis that lets us engage with local institutions and, and mayors and city councils and state legislatures. And all of them have overlapping timeframes. So in this particular case, for me in New Jersey, yeah, we have to pay attention to the federal election in November. But beyond that, there's an entire new cycle that goes through 2021 that has to deal with the state legislature and the constitution of that body and the governor's re-election campaign. And how does that process unfold? What demands do we make of both parties in the state in that next cycle? And I, I'm frank. This is a mistake I've, I've talked a great deal about going back to the 2008 election, is that the fixation on the election of uh, Barack Obama left the country vulnerable, that even when you got good interventions like health care, like the American Recovery Reinvestment Act, that the backlash that took hold in 2010 just caught people off guard. And I was like, you had to be looking for what was going to come next at that midterm election. And so for me, for activists, for folks who are committed to this work, no election is, is a huge turning point. It's just how do you take the result and continue to move forward with the agenda that you're committed to? That 
points back to your initial question about multicultural coalition and building that is that as society gets more and more diverse, you need to be able to talk to different communities. I, I've just done several workshops on folks who are unfamiliar working with folks from of South Asian ancestry or unfamiliar dealing with uh, Chinese or Japanese immigrant communities, getting into dialogue in, in Jewish communities and in, in Muslim communities. Those cross-cultural dialogues and the skill to move among them are the most important skills we need for the next 10 years and probably beyond that. So those are the commitments that I, I try to get folks to work on right now, voter registration, getting people to get out the vote, those are all crucial. But the longer-term goals about cross-cultural communication and setting agendas that, that work at every level of elected government, that, that's what, how I'm trying to get people to think beyond just a, a single big event. That's, that's a great way to put it, because I think psychologically so many people are just so fixated on the election. And if it, if it goes away, we don't want it to. We can't become crippled and let this movement that has been building up over the summer to just completely die out. What do you think activists and, and grassroots organizers should really be pushing the Democrats on right now? What, what do you think they should be really hammering home politically, like taking these movement issues to, to the political arena and trying to push um, onto the politicians? Yeah, there are two items that for me, if there is a substantial reversal, especially in the Senate, should Mitch McConnell lose and the Democrats gain even, you know, four or five seat majority in the Senate. Uh, the two top things have to be the restoration of the Voting Rights Act and then related to that, the removal of Citizens United that lets super PACs dictate the way massive fundraising works in our electoral system that we move towards public campaign finance. Those two things at the, at the first point. And then secondarily, the repeal of the uh, 20, 2017 um, tax revenue elimination that happened and kind of reversing 40 years of just starving the federal government of any resources so that we can invest in our infrastructure and our schools and police and fire departments and get rid of the fact that states and cities sit on the brink of bankruptcy whenever there's an economic downturn. Right, defund education, right, simultaneously. It's crazy. And so doing those two things, restoring citizen control over elections, restoring the way we can have a sustainable system of public revenue. Those two things are the first two things. And I think the bigger thing that on in an ongoing way, past like the first hundred days, has to be the way that we investigate corruption at the state and federal level. There has been just an unprecedented flow of people who are self-dealing into every level of government, not just in the last four years, but especially in the last four years. But I would say dating back to the start of the first Bush or the second Bush administration, sure. um, back to 2001, um, removing corruption as a function of especially house investigations, but also STEM investigations. I think that's something you can galvanize a strong political coalition that includes a wide body of Americans going into the 2022 elections. It's so important, all of those points, because you can't achieve any of the other progressive legislation that that you want, really, without tackling those issues first. Like many people said, we're, we're going to be pretty much screwed in the judiciary, in the judiciary department um, for decades to come with all these recent federal appointees. So it, it really, I think, does 
come down to how do we expand the government in a regulatory level, right? That's, that's, we need more regulation at every point is what you're saying. Yeah, the mythology about the private sector being more efficient and delivering better results is just completely false. And any, any basic study from whatever discipline can reveal the ways that the private sector just wastes resources and defeats the ability of the public to actually have a stable and inclusive society. That's the, the core. We, we believe the lie for the better part of two generations about the, the corruption of federal government and state government. And we've lost the sight of the balance that really made it possible for things like the civil rights movement to happen in the middle of the 20th century. And so getting back to core principles of what an inclusive society is and what it requires, that's my hope for the rest of the 21st century. But it does start with this election in November. So let's say somehow all the stars align and you know somehow in the next couple of years, we enter into a post-Trump America for good. And there will have to be a massive cleanup, as you just alluded to, at every level of government, federal, state, local, at every, in every branch of government. The damage that he's done and that you know, Republicans have done, and even some Democrats over the last you know, 50 years, it's going to take years and decades to really reverse. You know, so we can go in, I think, and completely revolutionize the system, kind of usher in a third reconstruction and reparations and, and a really progressive agenda. So to you personally, what are the main issues, main political issues that Americans should be focusing on in a post-Trump world? So, of course, I work in almost all parts of my life in different levels of American education and, and the overhaul of our public education system is, is at the top of my list in the long term uh, way that we say over the next 10 years, it's not no child left behind, it's not more stringent assessment or accreditation standards. It's, it's the piece about how do we actually educate in a way that allows for critical analysis from an early stage and allows maximum teacher autonomy that the joy of teaching can come back into our public school systems that there isn't the fear and the kind of sense of constantly being watched or controlled that I hear so many teachers talk about. Those are the things that, that come immediately to mind for me. I'd stay behind that in, in my research. The way that the global economy has evolved since the end of the Second World War has to be addressed. The kind of um, Bretton Woods partnerships between Western Europe and the United States and the kind of principles of central banking that shape the way developing economies grow, all of that must come under scrutiny. And so it's, it's not just about reparations, although that's central. We can't have a global consumer economy that creates new generations of billionaires and trillionaires over the next 60 years. Is that the notion of a common good and the way that we see digital markets functioning within a, a utility framework similar to the way we see water or the way that we see electricity, improving the way our, our fossil fuel system works and our transportation systems work. Those are the kinds of really big questions about how we overhaul what is a dysfunctional and destructive world system so that we don't see you know, our children, grandchildren, and descendants struggle not just with poverty or hunger or disease, but just with the basic ability to have a livable, livable planet. That kind of confrontation, and I guess people deal with it under the umbrella of Green New Deal or how do we confront the climate crisis. Um, but I think it even goes much further than, than the, just those reforms. Are right, basic. it's basic survival, right? I mean, in some ways, it's just we're, we're not going to make it if we don't actually deal with this. 
And I don't think people have a clear vision of how hard life can be. I think this um, COVID-19 moment with quarantine has given people a sense. Americans haven't had to really deal with the fact of not having public water or, or healthy water on a daily basis. And that's very present for me. When I, when I grew up in my community, most of the Black families didn't have in, indoor plumbing. Uh, they didn't have electricity in their homes. And so, you know, for me, in my memory, as a small child, the kinds of early 20th century experiences were, were true. Like, they, they had not disappeared the way they had for a lot of folks who lived in and moved out to suburbs or even lived in, in nice cities. That to me, is, is a very tangible future of what my kids will face. Like, I have a 17-year-old and a 9-year-old. I want them to have reliable electricity. Most people in this country have no concept of what life would be like without what they've come to take for granted as basic essentials. Right, and you're, you're absolutely right. Within the next few months, unfortunately, but, you know, we are going to start looking more like a developing nation with food lines and things like that as as more and more people are thrown into horrible poverty with, with, with the government not addressing COVID and, and the massive unemployment. Now, out of all of the amazing scholars I'm going to be interviewing over the next few weeks about this election and living in a post-Trump America, your work in particular is the most dedicated to intersecting academe with the art world. And you're well known within the academic world as, a, as an expert on comics. Uh, among other art forms. And I always like to stress to people how important art is for political movements and for any kind of civil rights movements to have mass appeal. And so can you just tell us a little bit about how you see art being used in the future to help create a better future? Yeah, so that's, uh, thank you. Um, that's a huge compliment. And it's it's a organic extension of me coming up in, in the early days of hip hop that by the time I was five years old, the Sugar Hill Gang was in my Saturday morning television shows. And just the sound and the aesthetic of people rhyming over beats on, on a street corner, it awakened so much possibility in my soul that to this day, when I, when I struggle, I can put on just a, a, a song or an album that I heard 20 or 30 years ago, and all of a sudden, the energy is there. Like, there's a new dawn inside of me. And so I would say as much as service is a huge part of how I live, like the voices of Karis Wine and Public Enemy and MC Light, Salt Pepper, Lauren Hill, like these artists, the entire way I speak, I used to have a horrendous stutter up until I was about 13 years old. Wow. And <laughs> it was repeating rhymes that I memorized off the radio, listening to DJ Red Alert, that, that helped me learn how to deliver words clearly. <laughs> and so that, for me, the art to the academic is just a lived connection mm -hmm. that I continue to gain strength from daily. and. So coming out of hip hop, you know, like graffiti is a huge piece of it, right? Like creating public art that's not sanctioned, that is coming from the soul of someone who may not have any other outlet. Mm -hmm. You know, we love to kind of mythologize this with films like Basquiat and shouts to Jeffrey Wright, who was just a spectacular talent, who was shaped in a similar crucible. 
Um, you look at Jordan Peele's work, it's, it's very similar. You can't internalize hip-hop without coming to breathe all of the different ways that you embrace expression outside of kind of institutional approval. Mm-hmm. And so when it came up for me in the 90s, you know, you come through Wu-Tang and Lauryn Hill and the Fugees and Nas. And then for me, it was Raucous Records. Raucous mm-hmm. Records to this day is just the, the stuff that, I, like, it pumps through my body. And so most of Talib, Shabamsky, you know, Farrell Marge, these guys just gave me life and um, carried me through those years of building up Ujima, pursuing my PhD, um, believing in a different kind of society. And so um, when we started doing Ujima and it was grounded in hip-hop, we were hiring artists from Jump, you know. Uh, there's this group called the East Coast Black Age of Comics that hosts the annual convention. And I was there at the first one where there's only like 10 of us <laughs> getting together talking about what eventually gets called Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. And like, this is happening at the same time as the Black Radical Congress with Manning Marable and like uh, Barbara Bransby and Sonia Sanchez. I'm in the room with Amiri Baraka, you know, like figuring out how are we going to rebuild this thing? You know, Robin Kelly being just like right next to me talking about the radical interventions and how do we move forward. Baron Jasmine Griffin, um, brother who just wrote an article yesterday, um, Anthony Montero, offering this kind of material criticism of, of what anti-racism must be. These, these are all my peers, my mentors who shaped me at the start of the 21st century. And so I'm going in to teach, you know, I had, I had a long-term kind of coding background, like doing a lot of digital design back into the mid-80s. And so I was a historian, but I was, I was grounded in hip-hop. I was grounded in, in the internet as it was developing. And, and those influences, that Afrofuturism, what, what you know, my colleagues are now calling the Black Speculative Arts, that process is what made it possible for me to connect my intellectual work to the creative world and, and hopefully challenge those boundaries you were talking about where, oh, you can only study economics. No, you can only study biology. No, you can only study history or politics. It let me have the commitment and determination to learn from all of it and continually stay in touch with all of it and see the way the fields of critical inquiry inform each other and start to see how different kinds of answers that if you're just focusing in one area, you might not see. And so, um, so much of the work I've done with, with economics has been about creating new art. The series of projects I did on illustrating the world economy and talking about just in, in really basic terms, what does the world economy look like today and how do you visualize it? And then stretching backwards and saying, how did it look 100 years ago? How did it look 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago? Now you have more and more people raising those questions and doing that work. But when I started that back 2010, 2011, there's just, there wasn't the sense of the possibility to go about pulling together the qualitative resources, quantitative resources, using the multiple modes of analysis necessary to have accuracy so that you can see something that no one else had seen before. Really, the, the combination of hip-hop and then my computer science background, those two things aligned to make the commitment to the art 
find its focus through the broader sense of interdisciplinary inquiry. And um, yeah, there's so many people that, that just think that every day. You, you at the forefront, you know, Masterless Man is, is one of these great examples. You know, I've talked about, you know, how to map the rural South for white working household, men struggling to kind of eat food on the table every day. And I remember, and just as an example, I, I was doing an early asset map of Alabama and looking at a place called Florence. It's right up on the Tennessee border. And it's an enormous commercial center, 1830, 1840. And no one talks about it. <laughs> and people just forget that the place even existed. And I'm like, there's so much there to kind of understand how our world works today by looking back at communities like Florence. A uh, similar one that I came across studying T. Thomas Fortune is Mariana, Florida. Mariana is in the Panhandle. It's, you know, west of Tallahassee. But enormous plantation economy there. No one has any sense to go back. Like, at best, if you get somebody to study Florida now, it's like, yeah, they'll probably study Miami. Maybe Jacksonville, but the idea of what Florida was in 1850, they can't begin to grapple with that. And so art lets us bridge that. And I think art, most of all, brings in the popular audience so that if I'm going to do work on social media, if I'm going to bring scholarly research to an audience that needs it, that wants to understand art, art, whether it's music, whether it's graphics, whether it's user experience, kind of gaming, all of that stuff has to be grounded in the specifics of the research, but it also lets more people understand it. And and I, I'll give a lot of props. Um, Melissa Harris-Perry did this on MSNBC with her, her television show on Saturday mornings. It convinced people that more people, that more viewers have managed complex content. And, and once I saw that work there, I was like, oh, we can do that same thing on social media every minute of every day. And you're going to see people ask better questions and not settle for the things that broadcast news or cable news wants to oversimplify and leave out perspectives. So that's, that's to me, is like the, the imperative. If you're going to access a popular audience, you have to have art. And especially a younger audience. I keep thinking of you know, the, the generation basically right behind me that came up with the internet, with phones in their hands and, and, the fact is, they're just not, they're not reading whole books. They're not even reading long articles. And that doesn't keep anybody's attention. Everything's, you know, click through. If you don't like the first paragraph, you just, you know, keep scrolling. And so art is a way to completely bring those people in and, and get them to learn about something like you were saying that they probably aren't going to devote time to. We're just a, a class gap. Um, I, I was just reading about, you know, 1960s civil rights movement when they're still worried about people in rural Mississippi that haven't learned to read. So you've got to use art to get these these political concepts across to people. But I really, really appreciate the, the way that you have been a pioneer, I think, in history and bringing art you know, and, and bringing digital history. I've been to several of your talks um, where you are mapping things out and it's just amazing. Can you explain a little bit about the mapping and how you kind of... Um, um, you know, how you do it and um, how you find these kind of crazy places that you end up, you know, making important once again. So that's, that's really history. That, that is historical method. That is fine. It's, it's going into the archive and you're, you're honoring the voices of people in census records and in their personal recollections and their diaries and their letters. And then just 
applying GIS, uh, geographic information systems techniques to the history so that once you have the story and then you start to actually situate it, um, I guess one of the models that I saw early on that helped me with this was Winthrop Jordan's um, Tumult and Silence at Second Creek. And, and that book, you know, folks who haven't seen it, it, it is definitely worthwhile just to kind of have on your shelf. He's looking at the allegation of a uh, slave revolt during the Civil War in rural Mississippi. And he, the first half of the book is his historical analysis of the events. Like, it's a standard kind of, this is how we go about decoding historical documents and figuring out a narrative that other people wouldn't ordinarily see or find. And then the second half of the book are his transcriptions of the primary sources that he found in the archive to help people go and compare, this is what I found. This is my best representation of what I can found. That you may not get to the archive to see what I saw, but I'm going to show you my process in the documents about how I put together what I wrote in the first half of this book. And it's just a, you can only be a really well-established, well-respected scholar to kind of pull up that kind of experimental text. But it was just absolutely inspirational for me as someone interested in maps and places and the way places evolve. I think the lesson when I taught and I would teach that book often, there are hyphens that he uses in one of the primary source transcriptions where he's indicating that the transcription of the actual interrogations of the enslaved people um, that are leading to the convictions and the killings to prevent the rebellion. These are places where the secretary, the transcriber, omits the beatings and the, and the violence inflicted on the Africans and African-Americans. And so you could see someone saying, no, no, I, I'm not involved. I didn't do anything. Then there are two hyphens. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, well, I saw Jimmy do this other, and I didn't understand. And, and the silence in those marks, right? Mm-hmm. Once I saw how he did that and then unpacked it, I was like, oh my goodness. I can I can spend years looking at these places where ellipses have meaning, where we see like the quote cuts off and they say, uh, redacted material. That the silences that come from the profession shape a lot of my sense of how do I render those in space? How do I see the places that are forgotten and bring them back? Great word a few scholars gave me a few years ago called the... Uh, the palimpsest, um, <laughs> these marks in written text that, like, you can tell it's been erased and written over, but there's still an echo of the original marking in the record. Those are the things that I try to apply within a, a geographic frame of analysis. It's, it's why I wrote Suburban Erasure about a place that I saw wiped off the map, literally, in the record where I live, where I knew when I grew up with people that just all of a sudden would no longer exist for people unless somebody came along and wrote about it and preserved it in some form. Those kinds of stories, it yields itself to art. It, it lends itself to, to oral history. I was really very pleased that when I first dropped Suburban Erasure that uh, I think probably a year and a half later, we entered into the conversation about Ferguson and what happened after Michael Brown's killing. And there were articles that came out and focused on Black communities that have been destroyed in suburban St. Louis for various kinds of municipal planning initiatives, but had never that had never been completed. They kind of displaced the black people and wiped out all their homes. 
but then never finish the project. Those stories are generally erasing the record. I think there was a social media campaign maybe two or three years ago that had like little funny memes of uh, people holding up signs about what what sarcastic or snarky comment you could make about his. And so I put one of those up that said, um, historians erase more of the past than they ever write. Yeah. And like, there's just so much we can only write. And it's, it's not really a judgment because we're human and we can't do everything. But to not acknowledge to the public that there is so much more that we, that we don't do than what we accomplish. To me, that was a really important moment to say, can we be transparent about what we do professionally? Yeah, no, that's so, profound. I mean, that's, that's a profound yeah. answer. Everything you said, you know, you, you've got to be a quote somewhere about the ellipses, what the ellipses tell. So in addition to being a professor and a department head, you've also served within the university administration as a dean. So what challenges do you see for higher education in a post-COVID world? Obviously, this is going to change everything. And do you have a solution or two you might believe help save higher ed? That is a serious question. And the billion-dollar question. Yo, yo, you're no joke. I see you every day. I saw, saw that piece, and I was like, wow. Yeah, there, there are things that have to happen. And the thing that's least popular is comes from a friend of mine, a guy I grew up with who is now the CEO of Walmart. Very, very competitive guy named Mark Laurie. He did a series of maneuvers with uh, e-commerce businesses where he just grew really big e-commerce companies over and over again to the point that he ended up taking over Walmart. And so that sounds like crazy, right? Like, how did this happen? Yes, like, it's, it's a very Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates kind of story. And what he has done that I find just devastating and poisonous and really, really dangerous for higher ed. Walmart now offers a program, an online education program people get bachelor's degrees where they're charging a dollar per course wow. to get to get your bachelor's degree. <laughs> like you end up, you might pay, you're not going to pay 150 bucks. Like in places like my institution for an undergraduate degree, we're charging the better part of a quarter million dollars <laughs> that people have to spend a decade or more paying back. And so that fundamental mismatch between what is a ridiculously affordable name on paper degree, but it's really fraudulent. There's no accreditation. There's no quality behind it. You're just essentially taking online classes to a platform and receiving something that says it's a college degree, but doesn't resemble anything that would be an actual legitimate benchmark of your accomplishment in any previous generation. But we also can't afford for 2,000, 2,500 four-year institutions to all charge a quarter million dollars per student to get what is a high quality, ostensibly, four-year experience. Um, and so I think there's an enormous opportunity in middle ground there for, for groups of institutions. The Ivy League is this famous one where it goes like, oh, they could all work together. And yeah, they do. They operate as a consortium in some very real ways. I think in other ways, large state institutions can, can operate in similar ways. But even if you rounded that out and said, you take the top 50 schools in the country and then you make the next 500 schools satellite extensions of that top 50 consortium. So here in New Jersey, it would be Princeton and Rutgers essentially buy out every other institution in the state, whether it's Ramapo or Ryder or Rowan, 
College of New Jersey, Monmouth, wherever you want to look at it. They essentially rebrand all those institutions and raise the quality of what's being offered by lowering the cost. Mm-hmm. That kind of process would bring a lot more people to the table. It would increase the quality and make more uniform while without necessarily impacting faculty quality. And I think the widespread use of the resources, like Princeton by itself, could underwrite higher education throughout the state of New Jersey off the strength of their endowment. But if you regionalize it, if you look, look at it, even in small regions, so a shared cost between Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, mm-hmm. and then a separate one that's between uh, New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey, you know, sub-regions, the amount of resources that you could allocate more efficiently that you would reward faculty for kind of creative work that they did, be able to pay higher salaries, get more benefits, but also increase the quality of what they're able to deliver in the classroom, it would be astonishing. I have never heard that idea, and it's brilliant. And I, I think about how it would transform rural America so much, too, that you would have access to institutions that are closer to home, where you don't have to be necessarily living and paying um, you know, to, to live at a campus. For so many people, whether due to family obligations or financial obligations, they cannot do that. And that living somewhere and paying for a meal plan, you know, can make a, a difference as to whether or not somebody can attend. So that, I, I love that idea. Yeah, suppose you created a region that stretched from Atlanta in the east to Memphis in the west, and you shared costs regionally across Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. Just the aggregate resources would dramatically improve the kind, kind of work that was available. You could do a similar Gulf Coast. Go from Tampa in Orlando around the Panhandle, out to Biloxi, out to New Orleans and Houston. Right. Again, extraordinary value to be gained that way. Now, if anybody wants to pick this up and take it, I, I am available. We, you can hire me very quickly to come in and help manage the process for you. But that's the type of thing that I think will save higher education in this next generation or two. Absolutely, yeah. Consulting fee right there. Go ahead and hire him. People now have, we've been watching for about 40, 45 minutes. They've gotten an amazing, wonderful education from you, uh, essentially for free on this show. So since you're so graciously donating your time, um, I wanted to ask you if there was a certain cause or charity or anything that's near and dear to your heart that you would like to encourage our listeners and watchers to follow or to consider donating to our time, their time or money. The first and biggest thing is, is the Teach Thomas Fortune House that, that we help save as a national historic landmark here in New Jersey. Uh, Fortune was a 19th century journalist who followed in the footsteps of Frederick Douglass. He was the first employer for both Ida Wells Barnett and W.E. Du Bois. He wrote the speeches that carried uh, Booker T. Washington to international fame. He was the inspirational figure who shaped Marcus Garvey's career in, in the 1920s. And so he's this just extraordinary figure that has been wiped out of the historical record. And, and we've received an extraordinary gift. We got $11 million to restore Fortune's house here in New Jersey and make it into a community center. But our operating budget is basically zero. Like we're, we're struggling every day just to keep the center that we saved open and operating. So if anyone can send $5, $10, or if there happen to be a couple of folks who have more that can give $10,000 or $25 or more, those folks, we, we need you. We're, we're a place that we've done great work, but to sustain it, 
in all honesty, I think it would take about $15 million to permanently make sure the center stays open. Anybody that could help us get close to that goal and even small steps towards it would be tremendous. If you can't donate, just if, like want to know more about it and continue the conversation, come and visit me on my website at uh, walterdgrayson.com. Definitely, you know, hit me on Twitter at World Professor. It's just an amazing community of folks working together on, on shared values every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's That's the exact same things. So folks, if you can't donate, all you have to do is look up the T. Thomas Fortune House the Center. Um, I will link to it um, at the bottom of this uh, podcast or YouTube, and you can just retweet those or, or share the resources with your friends just to learn more about it. And white people with some money, if you have been you know, awoken spiritually this summer with all the protests and are wondering how you can help. One way is to donate money to Black resources, to Black education funds, to any kind of Black organization. You need to put the money in. This is a form of reparations. This is something we need to be doing because we are the ones who have killed Black wealth in this country. So we are the ones that need to refund it right now. Thank you so, so very much for being here. And I have one final question for you. So if you could offer one piece of advice to Americans about how to try to heal from our past psychological wounds and move forward together, whatever happens, regardless of what happens in November, what would that piece of advice be? That's a huge deal. And it gets back to my roots in the church. And and it's funny. I spent six years teaching religion before I ever really taught history. And so the habits and the kind of assumptions that go into inquiries around religious texts and experience, they're still fundamental to me. And so to heal, there's, there's a first commitment to listen and honor each other with the time that we spend. And then when we share food, when we share music, we share a ritual that, that makes us feel more warm and comfortable together, regardless of what places we come from or how our families are different, what our, what our different languages are. Those commitments to do that kind of community and extended family connection, whether it's every week or every month, making that a regular part of your life is how we heal as human beings. It's a tremendously powerful thing. It's something, frankly, I don't give to myself enough. Um, I'm too often caught up in how do we build structure that addresses the kinds of problems we face. But that one hour or two hours that we sit in peace together and hear each other and enjoy our time together, that's everything. I'll say particularly to the scholars who are involved in this work. Uh, We talk about self-care. that kind of work that I'm describing is about care for each other and how we can constructively care for each other. And I know that there are a lot of folks that have you know, group chats and things that sustain them um, through the hard days. We need so much more of that for the folks who commit to these very lonely <laughs> lifestyles of trying to be academics and, and give the ideas that we need for our, for our species and our, and our world. More time to care and, and share together quietly and it can just be even on zoom sharing a favorite beverage and, and just listening to folks talk about you know what good things they're, they're doing in their space 
But that shared experience of, of joy and bonding and caring for each other is, is essential. We all need it. Well, I have enjoyed spending this time with you. Thank you so much for being here again. Just some amazing wisdom here. And I know our, our listeners and watchers will be very, very grateful. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a great night and we'll talk to you soon. Look forward to hiring you and helping bring sponsors to the program. I'll try. Thanks.